over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Well, we are so delighted and grateful again for Dr. Ken Boa joining us on the broadcast. We have had him as a guest before, so I'm not going to read his 86 long page CV Vita personalia, and we'll refer back to that on the show notes. But Ken, what a treat. Thanks again for joining the podcast. I'm delighted to be with you. So as you well know, we're going through this, what I'm calling the big book cover-to-cover series where I'm attempting to teach each book of the Bible on a given Sunday. And we wanted to come back to different subject matter experts. And of course, you have done such a great job with Talk Through the Bible and many other resources that synthesize, which is a hard thing to do. It's easy to do critical commentaries. It's tough to synthesize all this information. So we wanted to come and talk to you. First of all, we want to jump into the book of Nahum, and then we wanted to zoom out and talk about the minor prophets in general. Take us back to Ken Boa's thoughts on the short book of Nahum, a little bit about the prophet, and give us some insights on this book. Okay, good. I'm going to get to the presentation that I've got. And this is one of a series of presentations based upon Talk for the Bible that my associate Bill Ibsen and I created these visual presentations. And I want to walk you through these just as far as the fundamental structures of Nahum are concerned, the Bible and so forth. So let me just walk you through the Old Testament structure. And let let me interject for just a second, Ken. For those of you listening to the podcast, of course, depending on how you access this through iTunes or SoundCloud or the website, we've got all these slides that Ken's developed on the website. So you can go there and look. And if you get a chance to listen to this at your computer or your tablet or even your phone, you can watch what Ken's walking us through. So right now we're talking about the Old Testament structure. Structure, yes. Because... There are really three major kinds of books. There are historical books, there are poetical books, and then there are prophetical books. And when we look at those chronologically, 11 of the Old Testament books move the storyline of the Old Testament forward in time. And from the skeleton of the historical books, what we see is the poetical and then the prophetical books, those hang there. So for our purposes, we're going to be zooming down in the book of Nahum. This occurs before the Babylonian captivity. So as we focus on that, I want to just say some general comments as we synthesize this book in terms of introduction and title. A hundred years later, Nahum proclaims the downfall of this very same city because you see what we saw was to whom much is given, much is required. And Nineveh had been given the privilege of knowing the one true God under Jonah's preaching, this great Gentile city had repented and God had graciously stayed his judgment. But then a hundred years later, what takes place is something very tragic because Nahum proclaims the downfall of this same city. And this is, as we see, then they forgot their revival 
and they turned to their habits of violence and idolatry and arrogance. As a result, Babylon was so destroyed the city that no trace of it will remain. It's a prophecy that's fulfilled in painful detail. And the title of Nahum comes from the word comfort or consolation. It's a shortened term or form of Nehemiah, which means the comfort of Yahweh. And the destruction of the capital city of Assyria is a message of comfort and consolation to Judah and to all people who live in fear and the cruelty of the Assyrians. So the title of this book, basically, Nahum or Nahum. Now, the author, the only mention of Nahum in the Old Testament is found in chapter 1, verse 1, where he's called Elishite, and that's all we know about him. And the location of Elkosh, various suggestions that have been made there, was perhaps a 16th century tradition that was in Iraq. Another one was Jerome, who believed that it was actually a city near Rama in Galilee. And then a third one is from Capernaum, which means city of Nahum, Kephar Nahum, Capernaum. And many believe that the name Elkosh was changed to Capernaum in Nahum's honor. But most conservative scholars believe that Elkosh was a city of southern Judah between Jerusalem and Gaza. And that would make him a prophet of the southern kingdom and would explain his interest in the triumph of Judah. So just a few, few words about that. And then as far as the date of the book is concerned, because what I love about the scriptures is it's always embedded in space-time history. It's not just long ago and far away. We have chronological specificity for that. And in this case, here we are relating to the fall of Nineveh to the Babylonians, which took place in 612 BC. It's seen by Nahum as a future event. So critics who deny predictive prophecy naturally are going to date it after that, but that's not based upon any exegetical or historical considerations. And Nahum chapter 3, verses 8 to 10 refers to the fall of Thebes as a recent event. And this book yes. must be dated then. Yeah. After 664. So that was the year that took place. So it can safely be placed between 663 and 612 BC. Let me, let me ask you a question. Let me interrupt yeah, you for a second. Sure. So from our knowledge, we have both Jericho and, correct me if I'm wrong, Nineveh are the two most definitive archaeological sites that we can say they for sure existed. And this is the yeah. area where they, I mean, even today, this is modern Mosul, right? That's right. So we know where this was. This is not just some guesswork. And I just think that's an important point because the scriptures are attacked at so many levels. And we can say without any equivocation, Jericho, especially, and Nineveh were places that are not disputed historically. No, not at all. Okay. And along that very line, the more we learn from archaeology, the more discoveries are made, the more it actually, as you know, supports the actual authority and the truth of Scripture because of the external evidence. I, I like to say that the other way, that the Bible proves archaeology. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. <laughs> yeah. okay. a, let's just call it a reciprocal relationship of reinforcement. Okay, so, I'll let you go. All right, so yeah. let's go back to your slide. You're at the yeah, yeah. Restoration of Thebes okay. now with a guy with a yes, big beard. The Restoration of Thebes, yes. And so what we have here was a restored decade after its defeat, Thebes was, and Nahum's failure to mention this restoration led several scholars to the conclusion that it was written before 654 BC. The fact that Nahum mentions no king in the introduction to his book may point to the reign of the wicked king Manasseh, who reigned in 686 to 642. As far as Assyria is concerned, the conversion of the Ninevites in response to Jonah's message of judgment, that took place about 760 BC. 
And this revival was evidently short-lived because the Assyrians soon returned to the ruthless practices. And in 722 BC, Sargon II of Assyria destroyed Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, and then scattered the 10 tribes in northern captivity. And led by Sennacherib, the Assyrians also came close to capturing Jerusalem in the reign of King Hezekiah in okay. 701 BC. I'm going to interrupt you again because you've sure. got a, a bias relief picture up there on your slide. And I presume you've been to the British Museum of Natural History and seen the Sennacherib tablets. Oh, I love them. Yeah, I've been so, there more, multiple times. Yep. Correct. So what I tell, and again, I'd love your editorial expansion on this, when I teach these sections, is that this is a unique piece of history because we have the Assyrians' record of what they did to Israel. Yes, and that's very, very helpful. And it's consistent with our understanding with the Scriptures, so it really fits beautifully. So anyway, I just want to interject that. So keep going, Prof. That's very good. So a word about this then, so we have, going back to our Syria, by the time of Nahum, around 660 BC, then Assyria reached the peak of its prosperity and power under Ashurbanipal, who reigned from 669 to 633 BC. And this king extended Assyria's influence farther than any of his predecessors. And so Nineveh became a really critical locale, became the mightiest city on earth with walls 100 feet high, wide enough to accommodate three chariots riding abreast. This is impressive. Dotted around the walls were huge towers that stretched an additional 100 feet above the top of the walls. And in addition, the walls were surrounded by a moat 150 feet wide and 60 feet deep. So Nineveh was appeared impregnable and could withstand a 20-year siege. So Nahum's prophecy of its overthrow seemed rather unlikely, as you can certainly imagine. Assyrian power, though, faded under Ashurbanipal's son, and as a result of that, it took place then where the Tigris River overflowed its bank. And this yes. is precisely what happened with an overflowing flood, and the flood destroyed part of Nineveh's uh, wall. And so the Babylonians were able then to invade through the breach in the wall and plundered the city and set it in fire. So Nahum also predicted that Nineveh would be, as he said, hidden. And after its destruction in 612 BC, the site was not discovered until 1842. So it was hidden for a great long time. And just a few words about the book itself kind of give you a little bit of a survey. When God finally convinces his prophet Jonah to preach to the people of Nineveh, the whole city responds with repentance and Nineveh escapes destruction. And as you know, they humble themselves before the one true God, but their humility soon changed to arrogance because Assyria reached Zenith as the most powerful empire in the world. And about a century after the preaching of Noah, of Jonah rather, God called Nahum to proclaim the coming destruction. And this time there'll be no escape mm -hmm. because their measure of wickedness is full. So unlike Jonah, Nahum does not go to the city, but he declares his oracle from afar and there's no hope of repentance. So it's a very different kind of a book, isn't it? I could give you a bit of a talk through the overview or the... Well, let me ask you one question before you do that. Bob Chisholm and Gordon Johnson, you probably know Chisholm, you mean it, or Gordon, but they've written extensively in dissertations and commentaries about this chiastic structure in the book. And they yes. point to chapter three, verses one to four as being, and I know some don't like this reference, but the point of the book, if you will, which let me just go ahead and read that. Woe to the bloody city completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. 
the noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, sword flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies. Verse 4, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming ones, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. If their thesis is correct, that this is the woe oracle point of the book, how do you respond to that? In terms of the chiastic structure or? You know, just, we don't want to overdo the literature, right? I mean, we can, yes, yes, we yes. can sometimes push our observations on it, but that's a chilling point. If that's Nahum's main point. Yeah, it's a very vivid description, isn't it? Because of the whole idea of the nature imagery that's being used in here and the idea of the absolute destruction that's involved in this overthrow. If I'm correct in my study, this is the sure judgment of God. There's no option anymore. Yeah. No, no options are provided. No consolation is offered. So it's very different, once again, Sober. Jonas' ministry. Yeah. All right, so let's talk through Nahum. Okay, just to kind of give you an overview then of the destruction of Nineveh's decree. And Nahum begins with a very clear description of the character of Yahweh. And this is critical because of his righteousness. He's a God of vengeance. He's also characterized by patience and power. And he's gracious to all who respond to him. But those who rebel against him will be overthrown. And God is holy, you can see. And Nineveh stands condemned because of its sins. And so nothing can stand in the way of his judgment. This is a message of comfort to the people of Judah. The threat of a Syrian invasion will soon be over. And that's a very important uh, contextual understanding. And then the second section is the destruction of Nineveh. So first it's decreed, then it's described. And in chapter 2, Assyria is going to be conquered. Judah will be restored. And Nahum's description of the siege of Nineveh and the sack of Nineveh is one of the most vivid portraits of battle in Scripture. Uh, the storming warriors and chariots can almost be seen as they enter the city through a breach in the wall. And as the Ninevites flee in terror, the invading army plunders the treasures of the city and Nineveh is burned and cut off forever. So that's the second chapter. And then as we move into the third, then the destruction of Nineveh is deserved. So we go from decreed to described to deserved. I'm big on alliteration with these things, I'm afraid. I don't uh, have but that Nahum, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Nahum, don't do it with X's, though. There's certain things, Q's don't work very well, but I find certain letters work beautifully for this. <laughs> but he closes this brief book of judgment with God's reasons for Nineveh's coming overthrow. And this is important. The city is characterized by cruelty and corruption, verses 1 to 7. And just as Assyria crushed the Egyptian capital city of Thebes, Assyria's capital city will also be destroyed. And so it's fortified so well that defeat seems impossible, but God proclaims its destruction is inevitable. So none of its resources can deter divine judgment. Of course, these are motifs that go throughout the scripture. And then the topics of the book move from punishment to promise to pardon more alliteration. And likewise, what God will do and how he's going to do it and then finally, why he's going to do it. And so we're dealing with the locale. It's in Judah against Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, around 660 BC. So that just gives a brief overview. And perhaps it would be good for us to look at the theme and the purpose. As it's always helpful. Whenever I did the talk through the Bible, the chapters I had the structure, and it was always good to 
walk through so people had a feeling for the structure of the book and the theme, which here, beginning with chapter one and verse nine, the single thrust of Nahum's prophecy is the retribution of God against the wickedness of Nineveh. It's irreversibly decreed by the righteous God. He's no longer going to delay his wrath. And so Assyria's arrogance and cruelty to other nations, that's going to come to a sudden end. Mm. The power will be useless against the mighty hand of Yahweh. And then if that's the theme, the purpose, chapter 1, verses 2 to 8, portray his patience, God's patience, power, holiness, and justice. And he's slow to wrath, but he settles in full. So the book concerns the downfall of Assyria, but it was written for the benefit of the surviving kingdom of Judah. Israel had already been swallowed up by Assyria, and the people in Judah who trusted in the Lord would be comforted to hear of God's judgment upon the proud and brutal Assyrians. So that's a context for that. I always like to give some keys as well. A key word would be judgment of Nineveh. Is very simple. The key verse for me, one of the two key verses really, reflects the judgment of Nineveh and found in chapter one. The Lord is good, mm-hmm. a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue his enemies. So that's let, one of the key verses. Let me stop you there for just a second. When I read that, he knows those who trust in him. What a Yes, I love that verse. What a comfort. Yeah. I mean, for the believer who lives in doubt or fear or you know, an abusive home or whatever, he knows them. Yes, it comes down doesn't it always to trust and obedience. And trust is kind of an excursus, but if you consider the key to really loving God is to know him. So to know him is to love him, to love him is to trust him. To trust him is to be willing to obey what he calls us to do, when, even when it doesn't make sense. And when we obey him, we abide in Christ. And when we abide, we bear fruit. And when we bear fruit, we glorify the Father. That's my overview of John 15. That'll preach. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So so that, that was one key verse. Keep going. All right. Yes, I'll let uh, you go back. Yeah. Okay. A second one. Behold, I'm against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile, and make you a spectacle. Very strong words. And it will come to pass that all who look upon you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? So these two verses, these two texts that I just gave were critical for me. And then the key chapter, chapter one, really gives us the principles of divine judgment, which results in the decree of the destruction of Nineveh. And then it's the deliverance and celebration of Judah. So Nahum's prophecy proclaims God's retribution upon Nineveh because of its wickedness. So that would be a key chapter. And also God will delay no longer because Assyria will be destroyed for its cruelty toward its nation, its arrogance towards God. And while God is slow to wrath, his judgment is sure. The people in Judah read this prophecy and saw the storm clouds brewing have been comforted with these words of judgment. So that's another way of understanding it. And then the contribution of the book can be helpful for us as well. As we look at the contribution of Nea to the scriptures, in spite of Israel's wickedness in the time of Nahum. Uh, This book does not contain one word of condemnation 
against Judah, which is unusual. It has no call to repentance or reformation. It was the calling of Nahum's younger contemporaries. It was the calling of Zephaniah, Jeremiah, and Habakkuk for them to do that. So that's just a way of seeing this book as well and understanding then that God has a purpose in his dealings with the nations. And Jonah's, when we think about Jonah's hope really for judgment upon Nineveh, his hope really was dramatically described with brilliant imagery. And so ultimately that did come to pass. And then I have a little bit of a table here that we could describe for you. It's good to contrast Jonah and Nahum. So while the book of Jonah concerns God's mercy toward the Ninevites, Nahum concerns God's judgment of them. And then Jonah, written around 760 BC, Nahum about 100 years later, Jonah describes the repentance of Nineveh, while Nahum addresses the rebellion of Nineveh. The book of Jonah emphasizes the prophet himself, while Nahum places emphasis on the prophecy. So there's interesting this contrast to two, a couple more contrasts. Jonah is the disobedient prophet who resists God's call, while Nahum is an obedient prophet. The Assyrians are an obedient nation in Jonah, but disobedient in Nahum. And Jonah describes a miraculous deliverance from the water of a raging sea, while Nahum describes destruction by water. Jonah tells of the great fish. Nahum tells of the great fulfillment. So it's interesting to contrast and compare those two books. Then there are some specific prophecies that I include. Some details include Nineveh being destroyed by a flood and also by fire, and as well the profaning of Nineveh's temples and images. So these are just specific prophecies. Furthermore, the city will never be rebuilt. The leaders will flee. And the easy capture of the fortresses around the city is also predicted. So these are more. And then we have, in addition to this, the destruction of the gates is mentioned, the lengthy siege and the frantic efforts to strengthen its defenses. And all these events have been authenticated, as we said earlier, in archaeological finds and historical accounts. So I think that's very helpful for us to see and understand. So really, when we think of this book, only 47 verses, but it contains nearly 50 references to nature, which is interesting. And then Nahum is not quoted in the New Testament. Mm. And then the final thing I've got is just a little word about Christ and Nahum. And while there's no direct messianic prophecy in Nahum, the divine attributes of chapter one are consistent with Christ's work as the judge of the nations in the second advent. And so what we have is going to have a collection of applications, which I won't go into unless you want, just specific applications about how we can understand this book. So, Actually, I like to hear some of your applications. You, you don't have to do them oh, all, sure. but yeah, okay. give okay. us two or three. Let me let, I'll take a couple of them, yeah. Okay, so let me just look at a couple of them, because it's always, of course, important for us to tie those things together. And so the first application is that the guilty will be punished. And one of the odd realities, as we said before, is that we seem to get away with some sin. And God, from time to time, no lightning bolt comes and strikes us dead when we lie or slander or overeat or complain or compare or gloat or feel pride. And we may feel ashamed from such appearances, but we simply don't get punished. But unlike the child who gets caught with his hand in a proverbial cookie jar, we don't get our hand slapped for many of our sins. And the more we sin and go unpunished, the more we assume that we can get away with it. 
So oftentimes we just manage our sin. That's a kind of the gospel of sin management that Dallas Willard used to call it. And just to be sure not to commit the big ones, murder, adultery, blasphemy, that way we rationalize we're not so bad. And therefore maybe God will forgive us for the little trifling sins we've committed. And it's exactly this kind of thinking that Nahum, Moses, and Paul address in their writings about God's justice that otherwise escapes our notice. And so in seeing it this way then, the guilty will be punished is the concept here. The Lord by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Nahum describes and defines the clear and unchangeable reality about all sin. Greater small, the Lord will punish all of it. Indeed, I like to put it this way, that God cannot forgive sin. He can forgive sinners because sin must be judged. And either we bear our judgment or Christ bears it on our behalf. So it's a moral universe in that context. Going on, though, he will not leave the guilty unpunished. He defines a day, a clear and unchangeable reality about all sin, great and small. He'll punish it all. And so he may have been quoting Moses, who, when writing God's attributes, said that he is one who keeps loving kindness for thousands and who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, Exodus 34. But God Almighty is great in power, and he's able to execute the wrath that he threatens, but he's not going to acquit the wicked, and he'll by no means allow the guilty to go into punishment. So if this is true, then why do we think we can get away with our sin? The part of the greatest contributor has to do with God's patience because of his long-suffering toward all. He's patient and waiting for us to repent. The downside of this patience is that we can easily misconstrue his patience with his unwillingness or inability to deliver consequences. And every time we sin, there's a long time lag between accident and consequence or the apparent lack of any consequence. And that then has the idea that we somehow suppose we're exceptions to the justice of God. Let me interrupt you. The believer in Christ, because we can differentiate those who don't know Christ and the wrath of God will come upon the unjust. But the believer in Christ who toys with sin, who lives with sin, who coddles sin, maybe they... Uh, ask forgiveness repeatedly, but they continue to persist in sin. How does this apply to them? I should say yes. to us. Yes. While he forgives us our sins, there are consequences for them. So that is a very important issue then in understanding the difference between being forgiven and the consequences of sin themselves. And so it's a loss of potential. When I think of the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ, and I, the way I live is I have two days in my calendar today and that day. I live each today in the light of that day. And so if I do it this way, I'm aware of the fact that when I stand before him, the wood, hay, straw, all that will be burned off and we will suffer loss. We will be saved, but as through fire. But I don't want to take that lightly because there's the idea of reward and reward is based upon faithfulness to opportunity. So I don't want to treat this in a minor way. Will we see our sin for the first time as he saw it? Will we see the sin of unused potential? And so those kinds of things, if I live today in light of that day, it helps me to be more brutally honest about it. I sometimes say that men often have uh, sloppy thought lives. They have flabby wills and they have anemic intentions. That is to say that their aspirations are very thin. So we need to ask ourselves, what is the thing that makes us get out of bed in the morning? Why do we live? Why do we pursue what we're doing? And to live in light of the fact that while we will be forgiven, there are going to be consequences of potential loss of reward. And so that's a New Testament way of perceiving it. I want to jump subject. So 
step back a little bit, Ken, and give us some observations, high-level observations about the minor prophets as a group of literature. Sure, sure. I'd be glad to do that. I like to think of it this way with the minor prophets. They're like, well, the 17 prophetic books of the Old Testament are the dark continent of Scripture for many people. The people are even more unfamiliar with the 12 minor prophets as a whole than they are with the five major prophets. And so when I consider the minor prophets, then these 12 books became known as the minor prophets late in the 4th century AD, not because they were considered less important or less inspired, but because they're generally shorter books than are the five major prophets, especially books like Isaiah and Jeremiah. So their messages are more succinct than those of the major prophets, but they're just as powerful. And so when I look at the 12 that we see, they're joined together. And so before the time of Christ, they were collected together in one scroll, collectively known as the 12, and their combined length was to 67 chapters, about equal to the length of Isaiah. So it's just helpful to understand that they were collected in that way. And then as far as chronological order, the only chronological significance of the order of the minor prophets is in the English Bible is that the first six were written before the last six. So that's about it. (laughs) But then I have a scroll image here. The minor prophets from Obadiah to Malachi cover a 400-year span of history, which moves through the Assyrian, Babylonian, and Persian empires. And I think you'll like this little chart. The key to understanding the historical background for all of the Old Testament prophets is, is looking at these three pivotal events, the first in 722, when Assyria took into exile the 10 northern tribes of Israel that had previously split off from the two southern tribes of Judah. And then the second pivotal event was in 586, Babylon's completed its third wave of captivities, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, of Judah rather, and destroyed Jerusalem, including the temple, effectively emptying the land of Judah and of its people. And then the third pivotal event occurred during Judah's exile after the Medo-Persian Empire conquered Babylon, when Cyrus, a king of Persia, graciously allowed a Jewish remnant to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls and temple. So it's before, during, and after the Assyrian and Babylonian exiles that the major and minor prophets wrote. So Isaiah, for example, ministered after the Assyrian exile of, of Israel, and he warned the pre-exilic people of Judah to repent. So his key message was salvation of the Lord. Over 100 years later, then Jeremiah warns of the coming judgment of God through the Babylonian captivity of Judah, which after 40 years materialized. And then during the 70 years to Babylonian captivity, a Jewish nobleman Daniel just gains high political office during the reign of the Babylonians, as well as the Medo-Persian Empire, whom we saw subsequently conquered the Babylonians. So his prophetic writings dealt with the sovereignty of God over man and nations. And so just as God was disciplining Judah by the pagan nation Babylon for its idolatry and rebellion, it didn't mean that God was not was through with his people. And that's a key theme throughout the prophets. Through Daniel, he reveals his plan both for the Jews and for the Gentiles, whose rulers and kingdoms can't thwart his divine purposes. And then finally, um, Ezekiel, a contemporary of Daniel during the Babylonian exile, he received these fantastic visions from the Lord about events to come, including God's future kingdom. And in these visions, he sees the glory of the Lord, which is the theme of the books. So around these three major events and these four major prophets are clustered the minor prophets, including the nine pre-exilic prophets and the three post-exilic prophets. A little map of Israel here to describe it. There are prophets to the northern kingdom, which were Jonah and Amos and Hosea. 
So then we had six were prophets to the southern kingdom, Obadiah, Joel, Micah, Nahum, and Zephaniah, and Habakkuk. And then three were post-exilic prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And so it's helpful to see this and the, the audience to whom they were given. So basically to Israel, to Judah, to Assyria, and to Edom. And so this little description here provides a little overview. One of the questions of that. that I had, and I did not have a good answer for, back to your last slide, those particular prophecies to Edom and Assyria were, it's interesting to think that God moved a prophet to write a prophecy to them. They must have had a much more expansive knowledge base of the Lord of, you know, the God of Israel than we understand. Yeah, because Israel, there was a knowledge, especially in this context, especially during the exile, and Ezekiel and Daniel had a huge impact on that knowledge, and it may have even influenced later Persian thought because of the Zoroastrian religion, which seems to have been influenced by some elements that may have been taken from Daniel's profound impact that he had in his time. You never know. So I could mention a, a word about the adversity and individuality. They're all named, but we don't know much about them. Right. And their backgrounds and personalities are quite diverse. But the four basic prophetic themes, the first theme, and this is helpful for us to see the minor prophets as a whole. They all do this. They all expose sinful uh, practices of the people. And so considerable courage to tell the people what they need to hear instead of what they wanted to hear. And so this is one of the major themes that the only hope for the people is a humble turning to God. And so this is a like a watchman who just alerts the people of coming danger. The message is practical. And the second thing I find in these prophets, all of them, is that they call the people back to the moral, civil, and ceremonial law of God. And they reminded them about the character of God urged them to trust in him with their hearts, and he has a rich purpose for them, but they've got to believe and obey him. This is a major theme. And then a third theme that I see in these prophets is that they warn the people of coming judgment, and he's got to condemn the nation if its princes, priests, and people continue to arrogantly reject God's moral and spiritual principles. And then the fourth theme, as I see it, is the theme of anticipation of the Messiah. History is linear. Uh, not cyclical. It has a definite goal, and God's going to sovereignly move all things to a consummation in the Messianic age. And so his name's going to be honored. His voice is going to be obeyed by all people of the earth. So biblical prophecy, I think, is unique because of its clarity and specific fulfillment. Because over 300 Old Testament prophecies, as you know, filled the advents of Christ the first of the more even in the second advent. So this at least provides a message of understanding to him all the prophets bear witness. I was teaching through Zephaniah recently, and I made the comment, and again, just an observation, nothing rocket theology, but perhaps the reason we don't know much about these prophets as individuals is God is more concerned about us knowing the message, not the person. That probably would be the case, yeah. yeah. At least an observation, because if we over-contextualize the individual, then we might find ourselves, I mean, think of Paul's life. We know so much of his life the book of Acts, how he continually is defending his apostleship because of his background. And of course, that's part of the gospel story. But I just marvel that the obscurity of these men who, and of course, Hebrews 11 is a chilling chapter. You know, all these died in faith without receiving the promises in the main. And you made a comment very quickly a moment ago about the courage to call out sin. You know, pastors, Christian friends, we are loathe to stand up and say, men and women, this is sin. 
this is wrong. And it does take extraordinary courage to run that risk. It really does. When you mentioned about their obscurity, and it reminds me of one of the books that I taught in the great book series I did at Middlemarch, George Eliot's masterpiece. And the protagonist, Dorothea Brooke, was a remarkable woman who had incredible potential. But because of the way she loved and the way she served people, she never realized that potential. But listen to this end, because I love this conclusion, but the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive. I love those two words. You cannot quantify the diffusive impact of your life on another. I think this is really the way I put it. True fame is not in cognition, but in reception. By that, I mean, it's not in how many people know your name, mm. but in how many people have received your soul or your spirit, your life, and one life touching another. The growing good of the world was partly dependent on non-historic acting, that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been. It's half-owing for the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Mm. Many of the greatest contributors in the history of the church will not be in church history textbooks. Yeah, that's the truth. I often ask people if you know your great-grandmother's maiden name. Yeah, that's a good word. If they do, they're into genealogies, you know, but we, we think we're... Yeah, they yeah, have to be. We think we're something. Yeah, I was going to wrap up a couple of thoughts. Just the condemnation, consolation themes are really huge in all of these prophets. And certainly that's no exception with these prophets as well. Just one last thought. The four chronological points that address their own day, they also the captivity and return, the first coming of Messiah, and then the Messianic kingdom. And so the chronology wasn't as important as the events themselves. Yes. So sometimes these they were blurred, but some events were literally fulfilled and some were partially, and then some are waiting for future fulfillment. So it's just a helpful way of, for us to kind of tie these threads together. The more I see the unity and diversity of the Bible, the more I see all the players, the participants, and yet there's a coherent message that goes throughout the scriptures. You can pick any topic, any theme, and there's a unity in that diversity that is utterly astonishing. Mm. Dr. Ken Boa, prolific author, writer, Rolodex biblical theologian at hand. You have been a prince to come on our broadcast again, and we're going to get you on again if you'll grace us with your time. Anytime you like. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Gates. Music